Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 130. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, longtime friend and a longtime person on my guest to-do list, Sonny Brown from Australia. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for, you know, allowing me to, you know, put this uh, podcast opportunity off for so long while I summon up the courage to to come on your show. Yeah, not to disparage the guests, but I mean, this might be the worst return on investment I've ever had in terms of effort to book a guest. You and I... I think I guessed it on your show. I want to say it was over a year ago, right? I think the pandemic had just started around yeah, that time. Yeah. And right afterwards, we said, oh, yeah, yeah, we should get you on BJJ Mental Models at some point. And flash forward, I think over a year, here we are. <laughs> Finally, it happened. You know, it's good things come to those who wait, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, yeah. You know, well, things come to those who wait. Good. Things, yeah, exactly. Let's not, let's not be ourselves. Check up with too me much. in an hour and then we'll yeah. see if this was a good thing. But exactly. actually, I really wanted to have this conversation with you because of a specific topic. I've mm -hmm. obviously followed you on social for ages. And one of the things I've seen you really evangelize and post, other than, of course, rotoscoped fight clips, the yep. other thing that I see you posting all the time is clips regarding Kesegatame, mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite positions, probably a serially unloved position in Brazilian jiu-jitsu for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons. But I know that you've been working working on putting together some material to really bring that position back to the forefront. It's it's a funny position because it's such a key part of judo, right? I think that you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've also been studying with catch wrestlers who use it a lot. But in jiu-jitsu, it's just, it's very, very rare. Yes. It's become a bit of an obsession of mine probably since I was rolling with some of the guys here in Australia who particularly a guy called Kellock Soddy who was in ADCC, the last ADCC. So he's very strong on the local scene and he trains a lot with another guy called Harry Kimura who's a catch wrestler who's a brown belt under Josh Barnett in jiu-jitsu as well. And Look, the first time I rolled with Kel, it, re it really sticks out as a, as one of those defining moments because he crushed me. And I mean, I was a brown belt at the time and he crushed me with Kesagatami and even with side control pressure. And I, you know, I remember I tapped and I'm like, what, what was that? I've, you know, I've been rolling all this time and what I've never seen this move before. And he's like, it was just pressure. 
It was just you could you could hear almost the you know the disappointment that someone would ask that question, but also the mild satisfaction that that he could give that response, where it was just a precious submission, and that kind of set me on a bit of a path of just just exploring it a bit more because I felt like as a you know as a black belt. The ability to put that kind of pressure on someone just from a regular position, just the standard position, putting that pressure on is a skill that I kind of wanted to develop myself. And then, of course, you get into the fact that as soon as you tell anyone, oh, yeah, I'm playing around with Kesagatami, you everyone's got all these inbuilt emotions and pre-built responses of that is such a terrible position, which, of course, for a guy like me, I'm like, huh. That's interesting. Let me let me delve even a little bit more into this. Well, that's one of the things that always to me is a signal that something merits further investigation, which is when people <laughs> tell you dogmatically that it's bad. You know, I have trained long enough to remember when people had that philosophy around leg locks and all it took mm. were some people to really start critically thinking about that and saying, well, hold on a second. Are they really that bad? You know, there was a lot of dogmatic wisdom about why you should not do leg locks. And of course, as soon as someone started opening that can, we learned that actually, no, they are an incredibly valid system for attack and for control. And people, I think, had been stunting their growth by thinking dogmatically about leg locks. And I see a similar opportunity with Kasagatame, right? I started training jujitsu under a guy here in Vancouver who used Kasagatame. And I realize now in retrospect, that was actually pretty rare. Like a lot of jujitsu instructors mm. don't really teach that. And I liked the idea of the technique. So I started using it a lot. And what I found was, you know, people started immediately telling me, oh, well, you know, that's cool and all, but you got to be careful using that technique because it's not going to work because of X, Y, Z. And I just kind of stuck with it and kept using it. And even up to, to black belt now, I still find Kesagatame is one of my higher percentage positions to hold. I find that if I can get someone to that position, there is an extraordinarily good chance that I will either tap them or at the bare minimum, just make their life miserable, which is, <laughs> which I think you should get points for under IBJJF. Yeah. I mean, so let's maybe talk about the position first, because... I'm sure most of our listeners probably know what Kesagatame is, but just in case you don't, right? It's it's uh, a Japanese position that, as far as I know, derives from judo. It mm -hmm. uh, translates roughly to the scarf hold, so you might have heard it called that. The idea basically is you're inside control and you get a headlock on someone, right? You're kind of like sitting on your side, you're laying towards them. You've got one hand around their head like a high school bully, and you've got the other hand usually trying to use or control their nearest side arm. So it's kind of like you're attacking their their head and their arm, and you're basically sitting on them inside control. Kesagatame is a variant of side control, but you're sort of on your side and you're facing them. So that that's Kesagatame. There are variants of Kesagatame. Um, there is Kazure Kesagatame, which is where instead of having a, a headlock on your opponent, you have a far side underhook. I'm not really talking about that here today, though. A lot of people like that position because they feel it's safer, but I'm specifically interested in the original OG Kesagatame, where you're headlocking the guy from side control. Yeah. So, I mean, pretty much with Kazuo Kesagatame, that's not controversial for a lot of people. Like, no one kind of suggests that you're going to run into those, you know, any sorts of issues there. But it is that, that transition into Hon Kesagatame, where you give up that far side underhook to make connection with your opponent's head. That process itself is what 
causes a lot of the angst among people in going to that position. And possibly, you know, there's merit to it. You are giving up an underhook, but, you know, that's really a good point of debate, or at least it's, it's a pain point for a lot of people. So one interesting thing is that because you're Kesekatami or, and Hon Kesekatami. So Hon, I believe, I mean, all these are just translated through Google Translate is true. So like it's the, it's the true Kesekatami. And cause you actually means like a decaying or like, like decayed Kesekatami. And so many people just use it to say modified, but it's actually like a decaying of the original position. So it is the original position is the Hon Kesekatami and it decays into that casual position. So whether that you can take anything tactical from that, I'm not sure, but it is interesting, interesting to note. So with Kazuri Kesagatami, basically it's like side control. You have a far hmm. side underhook and you're facing your opponent. Really, that's what Kazuri Kesagatami is. A lot of people say in jiu-jitsu that that position is safe and they advocate for that over traditional but I think the reason why they, you know, they feel that way is because, of course, it's going to be harder for the guy to, you know, take your back or something if you've got that underhook. But it's also a lot harder for you to do anything, right? I mean, mm. yes, you're you're holding your opponent there with an underhook, but now both of your hands are kind of consumed and you're, you're not really able to isolate your opponent's arm and head to the same extent. So, yeah, maybe it technically is a bit safer. I'm not even sure if that's really true, but or maybe it makes you feel safer. But I personally prefer traditional Kesagatama because it's just so much easier to set up attacks from there. So I guess something that we should maybe do is actually talk about some of the myths of Kesagatame and maybe yeah. bust them, right? The one, I think, big myth that people always tell me when they say don't do Kesagatame, they say don't do it in jiu-jitsu because your opponent will take your back. I'm I'm pretty sure that's probably the, the number one go-to reason why people don't like this position. Is that aligned with your experience that people always say, oh, Kesagatame, you're just giving up your back? A hundred percent. I mean, that is definitely the biggest thing that's going to come up. And I mean, it is the, the common thing that's taught when, you know, to white belts, if they're, you know, showing headlock, headlock escapes, self-defense escapes, the first thing they're going to do is, you know, take you back as, as the counter to any, any sort of Kesigatami or headlock, which of course is a, like it is possible, 100%. You got to be good at your Kesagatami to, to stop that. You got to be confident in it. You've got to have your pressure and weight right to, to shut it down. But when you do get your pressure and weight right and your technique down, it does become very, very difficult to actually take someone's back from there. And it's not just me saying that. I've, you know, I've found on, uh, Ryan Hall's open elbow DVD, I think it is. He makes reference to the point, kind of pointing out the same thing that, hey, if people get good at this position, it is actually going to be exceedingly difficult to take their back from there. And even, you know, John Danaher, who, who wants to argue with him? I think it's in the Kimura DVD. He even makes a point of saying that, you know, if people get good at this position, it can be very, very hard. Or he probably would say shockingly difficult or one of, one of those ones to actually take people's back from there. So, you know, it is, it is a position that despite that common belief that, you know, oh, it's an instant back take, you know, if you get good at it, it certainly doesn't, doesn't play out like that. Yeah, it's an interesting argument that you should not play this position because there's the possibility of losing it. Like, you could make that argument about any dominant position, right? Mm -hmm. I could say, don't play mount because there's a chance that your opponent is going to hip bump you and now you'll be on the bottom. I could say, don't play back mount 
because there's a chance that your opponent will turn around and now you're on the bottom in guard, right? But no one ever makes those arguments. But for some reason in Kesagatame, people always make this argument. They say, don't play this dominant position because there's a percentage chance that your opponent might invert it on you. Well, yeah, I mean, that's jujitsu. Every yeah. position has escapes and reversals, and that's just part of the art. And that doesn't mean you don't play the position. It just means you learn how not to have that done to you. So exactly, yeah, I, that was one of the things with Kesagatame that I found was super critical is like understanding what all of these predictable responses and predictable arguments are and just having an answer for all of them. Now, another common one that I I know that people actually have a serious legitimate problem with is when you pull Kesagatame on someone, they try to do the like the London Bridge on you, right? Where they grab you and they try to bridge you over to the other side and now you're on the bottom inside control. That's mm-hmm. another common fear that people have when they play Kesagatami. They're worried that their opponent is going to like grab them by around the waist and just do a big bridge and reverse the position. And now you're on bottom side control. And that's, that's fair, right? I mean, it sucks when that happens, but stopping that is from my experience, not that hard, right? Normally that happens when you're leaning too far over top of your opponent. Mm -hmm. I like to play Kesagatami where I'm putting my weight kind of down beside my opponent, if I load up too much of my weight onto my opponent, or even worse, if I lean over them, of course, they're going to bridge me. So don't do that. Right? Yep. that. That's kind of my response there. I don't see that as a reason not to play the position. It's just a, a concern that you have to have if you're going to play it. Yeah. So again, that's kind of, you know, the, it can be the set about a lot of positions where if you off balance yourself, you're going to get swept. I mean, that's, that's pretty standard knowledge. And again, kind of comes down to, you know, the ability to get good at the position. And I define that as in, in this case, knowing where your pressure is, knowing where your weight's going, increasing the pressure onto your opponent to prevent that from happening. And to prevent the bridge, another thing that I'll advocate for is the use of a pillow, Kesagatami, which is where your hand that's going around the head of the opponent actually locks onto your thigh. So in some situations, you can be have two hands on your partner's shoulder or elbow, and that's where you have good shoulder control, and that's really stopping them from being able to take your back as well. As long as you can keep their far shoulder controlled and pinned, it can stop the back take. But if you play the pillow uh, scarf hold, pillow kasagatami, where your hand is on the thigh, that frees up your other hand to then do attacks, but it's also free then to to post if they do go for the bridge and can be a good way of, of preventing that roll from happening. The other things that you can also do is you can bend the opponent's neck as you are part of the Robinaki crew, you know, misalign their spine. So when you're actually pulling up on their, on the partner's shoulders, you know, as long as you can bend the the chin of the opponent as it comes into your chest, that's actually going to misalign their spine, take their head off the mat and also make bridging a lot more difficult. So there are some technical solutions that we can use to minimize that chance as well that, you know, relate to good, do good jujitsu essentially. You know, so part of those, you know, going back to the positional, like positional arguments that we brought up is, as you said, like people bring this up too with, with Kesagatami, but never with any other positions. And I mean, the big ones for me in my mind is, you know, we should then never go for a standing guillotine because you're going to get taken down like a hundred percent. And, you know, you should never switch to an armbar from mount 
because you're giving up dominant position and they can escape the armbar and end up on top and you've just given up position. None of these are taken with any type of seriousness that the knocks on Kesegatami are. So another another mm-hmm. interesting thing. Yeah. You know, when I was a white belt, absolutely. If I tried to guillotine you, good chance you'd take me down. If I tried to armbar you for mount, good chance I'd try, I'd lose the position. But let me tell you, black belt, Steve, that's not going to happen. If I do a standing guillotine on you, I'm going to get that guillotine, right? It's, <laughs> exactly. if, if you know how to really control a lever, like if I have a true guillotine on you, like you're not going to shoot a double on me. It's just not going to happen. And similarly, if I'm mounted on you and I'm going for that armbar, if I, if I really have your, your structure broken, I don't have to worry about falling to the side. Like, I'll just finish you sitting on your chest. That's totally fine by me. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting that people are are very concerned about losing the position when it comes to cast. And that's a good thing, right? It's good to know yeah. these these things that can happen to you, but that's not a valid excuse to avoid the position is, I think, the, the main takeaway. So something else that often comes up, I mean, this is, if I have to say there's like a big three in terms of predictable responses that your opponent is going to give you from Kesegatame. The first one is people will, you got to watch out for someone taking your back. Mm-hmm. Second one is you got to watch out for the guy bridging you over. And the third one is you have to watch out from the guy pushing your head. Cause th- this can happen if you're not careful, yeah. right? The guy can reach his, his arm around, push your head and even arm bar you sometimes from there. Right. I find that that's a pretty easy one to stop. Just mm-hmm. be aware that it's happening and don't let your head go too far back. Keep your head like closer to their head. If your head is kind of closer to their legs, yes, you do have to worry about them throwing their leg over your head. But as long as you're just mindful of the fact that that is a thing that can happen, just keep your head close to theirs. And that kind of takes that opportunity away from them. At least that has been what I have found playing this position over the years. Yeah. So yeah, exactly correct. You know, when you are playing the position, you should be keeping your head low and tight to the opponent so that they, you know, don't have that opportunity or the space to push your head up. But then even if they do start to push your head up, they're basically extending their arms out and I can actually then use that to set up attacks on their near arm or the trapped arm by rolling my body over the arm and then crushing it down. So essentially, you know, collapsing the frame that they've used. And then that can actually help get, get, you know, their elbow across the center line. You can set up head and arm chokes from there, can make things, you know, I've got transitions into Kimuras or double wrist locks from there and having these predictable responses that people have drilled into them actually allows you then to develop these predictable counters of what they're what they're going to do so by all means all the all the counters are valid but of course this is, this is jujitsu so we can then develop counters to these counters as well yeah and that that's the thing i like about kesakatame you know there's really only from what I can recall, like three big things that your opponent is likely to do if you put them in Kesagatame. They're likely to try to take your back, they're likely to try to bridge you over, or they're likely to try to push your head away and armbar you. Like that's that's actually not so bad. If they really only have three options, learning to predict and defend against those three options is not that much of a big deal, right? There's there's far more opportunities for your opponent to do gnarly stuff if you're just holding them in regular side control. So one of the things I like about Kesakatame is yes, 
There are things that your opponent can do to get out, but it's actually a pretty small list. You know, you can sit there and hold them in an extraordinarily awful position, and you know that there's probably only really three escapes that they can do, so just make sure you drill the defenses to those escapes. And like you said, every time they try to do one of those, it creates an opening to further advance the position or to set up a submission, which is one of the things I love about that position. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's as long as you're then, you know, developing the good technique, which again, a big part of it is developing that pressure and knowing where to put it on people. You know, it gives you these kind of predictable responses that you can then play into. You know, one of the biggest ones is then, you know, one of the biggest attacks from there is, of course, attacking the, the trapped arm in a, you know, Americana style V arm lock using your legs. You'll see that one come up a lot. It's probably the most high percentage armbar, I think, from that mm-hmm. position. And, you know, one thing that you can do in there in the position is you can put a lot of pressure on on the opponent. You know, you can crush them. But if once you get skilled at it, you can actually take that pressure off if you want to be nice to them. And and yeah. it makes, you know, finishing that armbar, you know, you just inside control, just locking someone down, finishing that armbar, you can actually use it as kind of a a gentle way to just tap someone who maybe is, you know, just flailing about a bit too much and you can just stay safe and and just be, you know, real gentle in putting those armbars on. So it does give you a lot of different options in doing that. Although the the developing that pressure and that, you know, even the pressure from side control is one of those things, Steve, that it's certainly, you know, by black belt, most people have got it down. But if there's any way that you can think of to increase the rate of how you can develop someone's pressure on top and just that weight sensitivity, that would be, you know, a good one to, to hear because I am, that's one of my current things is trying to figure out how we can, you know, make people get that, that heavy pressure on top by just, you know, remove, putting the weight on their toes, removing, you know, putting all the weight on the opponent. And just because it takes a lot of that, you know, fine motor skills to be able to do that. I can definitely pontificate on that a little bit. So something that we talk about on the podcast and a, a concept that I actually sort of figured out when my instructor kicked my ass repeatedly doing this is I I realized that you can get a lot of value out of minimizing the surface area that you expose to your opponent, right? If I'm laying Mm -hmm. on top of you like a wet blanket, my gravitational force and my pressure is being evenly distributed across all of your body and against a lot of your body that is pretty strong, right? Like me trying to put a lot of weight down on, you know, your abs. I mean, it might be uncomfortable, but your core is really, really strong, right? I'm not really getting the most bang for your buck. From my experience, the trick to side control and to holding it is to drive all of your weight down into a single single point where it's going to have the most impact. And usually that is Uki's face, right? <laughs> so, so what I do for, for side control, I always encourage use the least surface area of your body to drive the most force into your opponent's weakest part, which is probably going to be their jaw in this position. So I tell people, play the shoulder of justice if you want to do side mm-hmm. control, right? Get up on your toes, turn just a bit to the side so your shoulder is kind of extending towards your opponent's jaw and just drive all of that force through your shoulder. And that that I find to be the most important thing. Now, if your opponent is good, they're going to know that the key to getting out of side control is constant motion, 
right? That's, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if they just sit there and do big explosive movements, it's actually going to make life worse for them. So a good player on the bottom is going to be making small micro movements to try to get out of there so that you can never settle your weight down. And the person on top then, they need to understand that if the guy on the bottom is squirming, the correct response is not to try to clamp down further. It feels like Mm. it should be, but it's not. The correct response is to react and move with your opponent and switch side to side and burn them out. If you just sit there and try to desperately hold a position while your opponent is making movement, it's, it's hard. So when it comes to side control, my general advice is put the most force down through the the smallest surface area onto the weakest part of your opponent's body and to understand that you need to be reactive to your opponent's movement. And the same thing applies for Kesakatame, right? If you feel mm. like you're, this is where people get screwed up in Kesakatame. Their opponent is in the process of escaping and they try to hold that headlock for all it's worth. Like maybe if I just, yeah, my opponent's about to get to my back, but maybe if I just hold this headlock harder, they'll stop. And it's like, no, that's not going to work. If they're out, they're out. And it's now time for you to transition on to the next thing. If you try to hold on to a position that your opponent is escaping, you're one step behind the game there. So that's that's the general advice I have for any side control position, whether it be Kesagatame or whether it be traditional side control. Yeah, that's that's fair. The way I look at the position Kesagatame is like a ride in wrestling where you have to be constantly readjusting your body position and just put to keep the weight on the opponent and obviously not let them get the angle on you to potentially take the back. So I'm always talking about keeping the leg that's near your opponent's head, keeping that in line with their with their head. So keeping it in line with their spine. And if they make any slight movement off center, you've got to be readjusting that leg immediately so they can never get the the angle on you. And yeah. then the other way that Kesakatami allows you to increase the pressure is, and this is part of the, the Kesa crush, the fat boy choke, the, <laughs> you know, this, this, the, the submission that Josh Barnett got Dean Lister in at Metamorris is probably the where people are most familiar with. After 20 minutes, you know, of, of exhausting battle, we, you know, one caveat there, but you know, that's where you're actually then lip rolling your opponent's shoulders up off the mat. And by doing that, you're reducing the surface area of their body that's making connection with the mat. And then, which then has the effect of putting the same amount of pressure through a smaller amount of surface area, which is then for the opponent is feels like that you've just increased the pressure up to, you know, exponentially, basically. That's where it got the name of 270, 270 choke by uh, Eric Paulson. Or, you know, if you did happen to catch that podcast I did with him, it was the, uh, we renamed it to the 125 kilogram choke for, for the people um, on the metric system. <laughs> well, this is another thing I want to talk about here, which is there is a perception that Kesakatami is a big boy hold. And I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like if a big person does it to you, it yeah. sucks. It really does. But that's true of any top pin, right? right. Like I, I, I don't care if, if you're, you know, really good at jujitsu or not. If you get me inside control, if you weigh 300 pounds, it's probably going to be a bad day at the office for me. But Kesakatami gets this reputation as being a move that is for for big guys. And what I have found, I mean, even at white belt, I was kind of infatuated with this hold and, you know, white belt, Steve was not that heavy. I mean, (laughs) granted, you know, the pandemic Mm. has, has taken a number on me, but prior to this, back when I was training, you know, I, I was, my weight class was around like 160 pounds and I use Kesakatame 
all the time, right? Often against much larger opponents. I remember I was sparring with a guy and I held him in so much pressure and broke his tooth in that position. Like, Kesakatami <laughs> is no joke. And yes, it's going to suck harder for your opponent if you're a big guy, but that's true of almost any topside pin. And I don't see any reason why a smaller person can't use Kesakatami. I, I would like to get your thoughts on that as to whether you think it's really a, a feasible pin for a smaller person. Yeah, I think that it's kind of like you have to admit that, you know, if you are bigger, you, yeah, like you said, pretty much any position's going to have increased, you know, ability to hold, increased ability to, to put pressure down and put your weight down on the opponent. But it's still the same thing holds true then with Kesigatami that a small person can make it work for themselves and sometimes even in, you know, a better fashion as they are able to readjust and, you know, use what weight they do have to the maximum effect. And I mean, that, I guess, kind of philosophy does run counter to a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, where the idea that, you know, size shouldn't matter and weight shouldn't matter. So you're not, you know, they're not looking to, in ways to use the weight effectively. You know, they're not always looking to ride and, and put pressure down onto the opponent, at least in the traditional sense, right? But obviously any competitor is going to be using looking to put their weight down on you as much as they possibly can. So, I mean, I've seen it w- work with smaller people on bigger people. And I mean, personally, I, you know, I, f- I actually use it myself on bigger people mm-hmm. because I've, what I've actually found, like with the, those escapes that we talked about, especially the taking the, taking the back or, you know, trying to throw their legs around and, you know, put their legs up over your face. If I'm bigger and I'm using it on a smaller person, if they're skinnier and I'd say more flexible, they find it much easier to be able to throw their legs around and kind of squirm out of the position. I think of it like, you know, sometimes with on smaller people, it's like putty where they just, you try and squash them and they just can squeeze out, squeeze out the gaps. Whereas if I'm, if I'm using it on a bigger person who's perhaps, you know, big, bigger chest, less flexible, you know, not used to trying to, you know, invert that kind of stuff. A lot of the escapes, they just don't even have the, you know, the ability or just the, you know, the intention of going to because they're not looking to launch, throw their legs up and, and try and hook a leg over your face and, you know, essentially invert from that position. So for me personally, I get higher percentage using it on larger people than, you know, sometimes there's some people I can just look at where they're, you know, they're lanky bendy, flexible people. And it's like, they're the, they're actually the people who are going to give me a problem holding the position. Yeah. It's, it's, if you really want to demoralize a larger opponent, like nothing is more demoralizing <laughs> to a big guy than a little guy holding them in Kesakatami. It, it will break their spirit. It's like a, it's like taming a stallion. It's quite an incredible thing to do. So you bring up a good point though, which is, you know, we talked about how the number of predictable escapes and reversals from Kessa. There's really not that many things your opponent can do. But the interesting thing, as you astutely pointed out, is that you can often predict what your opponent is going to try to do based on their body type. Yeah. If I'm sparring against a, a small squirmy guy, if I put him in Kesagatame, I can be pretty sure that he's not going to try to bridge me over. Like odds are he's going to try to tuck, to get his head out and take my back, or he's going to try to push my face away and throw his leg up and arm bar me. So mm-hmm. I, I can pretty easily know what he's going to try to do. Whereas with a big guy, if I get Kessa on a big guy, 
I can be almost assured that he's going to try to bridge me, right? It's it's very unlikely if I'm sparring against a big dude that he's going to try to throw his leg up and armbar me. And he's going to probably, if he's big, have a hard time pulling his head free. So odds are he's going to try to bridge me. So, okay, mm-hmm. I, if I know what he's going to do, it's a lot easier for me to defend against it when he inevitably tries. And, you know, Kessa is one of those funny positions where when I'm going into that position, I like to pay particular attention to the shape and size of my opponent's head and neck because you can kind of tell like if your opponent has this big giant head like you can look at them and be like there's no way this dude is going to get his head free (laughs) but some people they just have like little heads and little necks and you know just by looking at them like this is i'm not going to be able to hold this guy's head in position so as stupid as it sounds i have found that it is important to (laughs) do a cranial analysis on your opponent going into kesakatame so that you know what escape they're going to try to use (laughs) I know I hadn't thought of it like that, but yeah, you got to, you got to, you got to be looking at the crown of the back of the head, and you know that's the notch that you're gonna you're gonna lock onto, and yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm gonna be doing a few cranial analysis. <laughs> well, let let me ask you here, going into this topic, yeah. what do you see as some of the like the critical control points for Kessa? Some of the things that sure. are most important if you want to play that position, like regardless of the situation, there's always going to be a few details that you absolutely need to nail. I I would ask, what are the ones from Kessa in your experience? Sure. So definitely your leg positioning is is huge. Now you can, like any position, you can get away with, first, actually, I'll tell you the ideal leg positioning that I think, which is, you know, your legs at 90 degrees one leg that's near the opponent's head out straight and then the other leg that's in line with their shoulders out straight as well. So at a 90 degree angle. Now, I think it's very important to keep those in that alignment as your opponent makes any micro adjustments. <laughs> so, so as they're moving around, you've got to be keeping those those legs you know, at that 90 degree angle for me. Now that one near the head is if that starts drifting away as the opponent moves away from, from you, that's where, you know, they're going for a back take. It's opening up space that they could possibly get their elbow back to the mat and that has to readjust so that the front leg can be used to prevent bridges by on your toes if they try and bridge you over their head. And then it's also used, I use it as like a guiding, guiding stick. So as I'm, I'm always looking to keep that in alignment with their spine. And then the other leg, which I consider the base leg, is that's what is using you to push and pull your weight onto and off of your opponent. So it's it can, you know, if you overextend, that's when you're going to roll over the far side. If you overextend the other way, then all your weight's going to be on the mat. So that, again, has to be in constant motion, just readjusting to any of your opponent's movements. And, you know, that can also help prevent the bridges as well. As your opponent can bridge away, you can actually pull yourself back towards the mat with that leg. So those are are really critical in holding the position. The next thing I'd probably say would be, well, actually, let's let's get, get into it, is the big one would be the opponent's elbow position. Because for me, once the elbow that you have trapped of your opponent, that is absolutely critical, vital, has to remain trapped to stop the dreaded 
you know, back take from happening. It is really that control of that shoulder, shoulder control and control of that elbow that is giving the position its power. So you have to, with all, you know, every prioritize with everything you're doing, keeping that elbow controlled. As soon as that elbow kind of hits the mat, that's when I'm looking to bail on the position and transition out, out of there. So that is, is probably utmost even above the legs, which is going to help you control the elbow, but the elbow has to remain controlled the entire time. And then the other thing would be the head position of the opponent, which is sometimes, I think I, I touched on it earlier, but sometimes neglected is just, you know, you just, tr- you're trapping them in a headlock, but I really want, want to emphasize then, you know, trying to bring their chin to their chest, trying to put a little bit of an angle on it as you turn it and that get that misalignment of the spine happening, which again can, is going to make one, the position uncomfortable, but it's also going to help preventing the bridge, bridge escape from happening. So if you can turn that chin towards you or even away from you which can set up some other attacks but if it's if it's turned if the chin's turned towards you and then you can tuck it into their chest as you lift up then you've got a, a really stable position awesome and one thing that i would also add as well is manage your center of gravity you don't want to be in a position where your center of gravity usually meaning you're leaning your head too far you don't Mm. want to lean it too far over to the other side of their body because that's how you get bridged over i don't like to have my head postured up like i'm sitting in a chair i like to be crunched down and i like to have my head actually quite close to my opponent's head when i play this position Mm. if you are leaning too far over to the far side it enables your opponent to bridge you so you actually probably want to have your weight off to the near side of your opponent right that's how i play the position anyway where i i will have my center of gravity beside my opponent not on top of them not on the far side but on the near side and just like with side control i'm driving into my opponent kind of from the side i find that to be better because then they can't bridge to get out yeah i kind of describe that as if you like put your hand onto a wall and put all your weight onto it. And then you start to take an angle off to the wall. So you're leaning against it, but still you're supported by the wall. And it kind of feels like that at any moment you could, you know, your hand could slip and you're going to have to, you know, take a step to keep your balance. But that's the kind of pressure I kind of described to put onto the using your chest onto the opponents to kind of, to kind of, you know, you could be falling off to the side, but you're not. Mm-hmm. And you just keep that pressure on them the whole time is, is, is what I look to, look to get. And yeah, that's, that's can make it really uncomfortable. And the, yeah, of course, the center of gravity is huge. And that's, you know, the, the ability to, to develop that's, you know, the awareness of your center of gravity is crucial in this position as it is in any, any top, top side position, I think as well. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And in my opinion, one of the most crucial details is something that you mentioned, which is managing their near side elbow. If you let that touch Mm. the mat, you're in big trouble because they'll get your back or they'll they'll get up to turtle or do something right. And then you're in a bad position. That that to me is actually probably the single most critical detail is just you've got to keep that near side elbow off the floor. I think when people play Kesagatame, they sometimes think it's all about the headlock, but actually it's not really like the headlock. The headlock is important because you don't want them to pull their head free, but getting their elbow off the floor is to me the most critical detail because that's what prevents your opponent 
opponent from getting onto their side. And that's what you want to avoid. If they can get up onto their side, there's a decent chance they're going to get out. You need to keep them shoulders pinned to the mat. And the way you do that in Kessa, because you don't have any far side control, the way you do that is by keeping that near side arm from their elbow. You keep it from ever touching the mat. That's kind of one of the most critical details for Kessa, because if your opponent gets to the side, then at that point, they're basically, they've escaped already. Yeah, so that, you know, that elbow, which is a good principle to use to teach people in jiu-jitsu for their entire game, really, is, is you know, the importance of elbow control, center, you know, center of gravity. That is is the crucial thing. And then, you know, even because we know that that's the crucial thing, so there's even transitions out of that. As soon as the elbow hits the mat, I'm actually going to look for, you know, the, the most common one is then looking to roll back for a double leg to shut it down. So we can even, you know, we know that that's the crucial point. So as soon as that happens, I've, I'm drilling responses to do, to, you know, immediately once I notice that that's happened. Right. Cool. So I think that gives a pretty good breakdown of the position. I guess what I'd like to know now from your perspective, how do you bail? Like what what do you do if it's not working? What is your plan B if you try Kesagatame and you know you're just not going to be able to hold your opponent there? What do you like to transition into or out of? Yeah, so the main transitions from there that I'm looking forward to get out is there is, it's, it's difficult to explain. And this is something that I'm filming to put up, but there is, you know, I've, I've got a good transition actually just back to side control that controls the head the entire time. And, you know, the, the one I mentioned that is, is probably more commonly known is the, like you're rolling back, keeping your elbows in tight and dropping back down onto a, essentially a double leg from that position which is which is fine by me but i mean i'm happy to just keep you know keep the pressure on the opponent and you know and crush them and then there is a, a you know you can transition back to side control there is a there is a, a safe high percentage way to do it it's difficult to to explain right over without the video footage but that's something that i'm going to be putting out and of course i, I before we before we move on i've got to I've got to mention that, and I hate to, you know, actually be involved in making the buggy choke any bigger than it might already be. But one thing, you know, the buggy choke actually is an option for people if they get rolled in that Kesagatami position and they hold on to it. That choke is there as, as an option as well. I just, I just wanted to put that in and, you know, hey. If, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really advocating the use of the buggy choke, but hey. Maybe go for it. If, if it's certain per- works for you, certain body types, go for it. So there you go, listeners. If you're into meme <laughs> chokes, here's a meme <laughs> choke for you. Meme chokes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. For me, if I'm trying Kessa and I feel like, okay, this isn't, this just isn't working. I need to get out of here. What I like to do is first and foremost, I transition back to a more traditional Kessa if I was in like the pillow version. By the mm-hmm. way, I love that. I love that you call it the pillow Kessa. Like you're talking about a pillow scarf hold. And at this point, this sounds way more cozy than it actually <laughs> is if you're the guy in the bottom. Um, but if I'm, if I'm in that position, like the one downside to being in that pillow position where you're grabbing your leg is for better or worse, you're kind of stuck there, right? So mm-hmm. if it's working, great. 
I hang out there. If that's not working, what I do is I release the pillow and I go back to regular Kessa where I'm using my hands because from there I can walk my legs back and I can go back to side control or to an arm triangle or to knee on belly, right? I, I find yeah. that works a lot is if I, if my opponent is, if I feel like he's going to get out of this Kessa Katame, I switch back from pillow, if I was doing that, back to the regular Kessa, where I'm holding him with my arms and I'm keeping his elbow off the mat, and I just walk my legs back around and I go up to neon belly, because then I get some points out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a a good transition too. And of course, there's, you know, you can get savvy at getting, taking mount from there. So there there are these transitions out, out of the position, which is probably another big one that I have heard is that like, once you get there, you're stuck. There are transitions out of there that work, but you know, people generally taught them that as, as often or because the whole position is, has kind of been neglected for, for a long time, which is, it's so interesting to me, actually, this point, because, you know, if you look at, you know, the classic match, Helio versus, versus Kimura, there's really, there's three big positions that are used in that match. And, I mean, we could probably take a guess at what some of those are, Steve. You you know what? It's, it's been so long since I've actually seen that match. I, all I remember of that is them standing up and within, like, a split second, Osodogari and Helios on the ground. That's yeah. the only thing yeah, I remember yeah. from the yeah. whole thing. But I'm presuming, based on the topic of this episode, you're going to tell me that uh, Kimura probably plays Kesagatame. Of course, yeah, yeah. So he, you know, he plays a lot of Kesagatame in that position, and of course, you know, the Helio escapes and he goes, but he doesn't take his back. Um, and you know, and they 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 stand and get thrown again. They go back to Kesagatame. So like that was a huge position in that match that is undoubtedly you know, shape the culture of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Obviously, the other big, I should say, probably move rather than maybe position, or you can consider it position if you like. But of course, is a Kimura, you know, which that one everyone's taught about, you know, probably at white belt jiu-jitsu, obviously. Learn about the Kimura, learn about the history of the Kimura. You know, you learn about this match while they're teaching it, but then in the same in the same fact, they'll neglect, you know, Kesagatami doesn't work. But here's a move we renamed from a guy who you know, <laughs> used Kesagatami in, in that very same match. And then the third one, which is which is fascinating, is then the side triangle, or the I believe Senkaku Jimmy, Jimmy Senkaku maybe, trying to get fluent fluent in that in the Danaher speak. But the side triangle was a was a big position, and in fact that was used. To, you know, actually ended up making, I believe, Helio's ears bleed. You know, that, that could be I'm re- probably just referencing Wikipedia on that. So that was a huge position. And one thing, I mean, I can't find the foot, like complete unedited footage of the match. It's pro, I don't know if it's ever been released, but I do wonder if there was, you know, if it was a Kesakatami transition into the side triangle, into the, you know, into the Kimura that potentially, you know, led to the, led to the finishing hold. And I just, I just find it fascinating that in that match that's led to so much cultural impact, that Kesagatami was a strong point in there, which has been derided. And then the side triangle itself has, was kind of been somewhat forgotten, but it's not taught, you know, as one of the fundamental techniques most commonly associate with Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And to me, I just find that fascinating because of course, obviously Danaher now has it on his triangle DVD. Other people obviously covered it for sure. It's common in judo and it's certainly making a, a comeback as like, oh, this is a really good position to get someone in. 
and just that, just how that kind of cultural, you know, development took place is, I don't know. I just find it interesting. I could be wrong here, but if we're speaking Japanese, I think the side triangle is Yoko Sankakujime. Yoko Sankakujime. That's it. Sankakujime is like standard triangle. So that's it. That's there it. There you go. But it's, it is interesting how like a lot of these positions, they just, they don't evolve because people have it in their heads either that it's just there's something wrong with that position or maybe it just never caught the zeitgeist and it never became yeah. a big thing. I think like we've established here in this episode that Kesakatame is an awesome position. I love playing that position, but I remember when I started it, I also had that fear of, okay, I get when I get to this position, there's nowhere to go from here. I kind of felt the same thing. And I think that prevented me from developing that position for a while. But after playing it as much as I have today, I now have a whole series of transitions out of Kesagatame. So I find it to be actually an incredibly powerful position if you want to transition into and out of. So I don't buy that argument that once you get there, there's nowhere to go. Like you just, you need to be willing to transition and not be so committed to Kesagatame that you're holding on to it even when you're losing the position, right? But that applies yeah. to anything in jujitsu, right? You never want to overcommit to something if you can avoid it. Yeah. And then knowing to, you know, when that time is to bail, when, you know, and having the confidence in the transitions out of there that you are willing to, to make that step. Because of course, you know, you can tell people as soon as the elbow hits the mat, you got to go. As, yeah. as soon as you oh, I, I think that, you got to get out of there before the elbow hits the mat. If your opponent's elbow hits the mat, you've already lost the position. Like what exactly. I, what I think, I kind of look for three red flags, right? Number red flag number one is, I think my opponent is going to be able to get their elbow to the mat. Red flag number two is I think my opponent is going to be able to get their their ears out of the headlock, right? If they can get their mm -hmm. ears out of the headlock, they can get the rest of their head out of the headlock too. And yeah. number three is I think my opponent is going to be able to swing that leg up and catch my head. If that if that happens, I'm probably going to get armbarred or something. So, yeah. so if one of those three things is happening, that's when I transition out and into something else. Yeah, which and the uh, the swinging up and catching the head is the escape that Helio used on on Kimura, just out of out of reference. But yeah, you're right. The you know you do have to tra you know initiate your transition before you know the elbow does hit the mat. That's like the that's the warning. The red light should be should be on before that happens. And getting people to be comfortable to to make that transition, notify, notice when they they are losing those those points of control. Like it can, it can be difficult because people, you know, want, they got the head and it just feels like, ah, uh, you know, I've got, I've got that control. So there is something also that just seems instinctual about that position as well that, you know, oh, I've got the head, they're, they're not going anywhere that you do have to, you know, train people out of with, you know, with good technique. One parallel I can draw, it's like when you're playing back mount and you can feel that your opponent is going to get out, right? Like they, maybe they get their shoulders to the mat and you know, it's only a matter of time at that point. The worst thing to do is to try to cling onto and hold that position for dear life because they're going to wind up on top of you, right? You need to transition. You need to go to a Kimura trap or come up and take mount on them or do something. You can't just sit there and try to hold onto a position that your opponent is clearly escaping. And the same thing applies to Kesakatame, right? You've got to be ready to hit that eject button and go back to something else. Exactly, exactly. And so it is, you know, once you develop those 
those transitions. It is something then it's, it's a skill in all jujitsu where you got to learn how to notice, you know, notice when those things are failing and then the ability to let go when necessary. And that's, you know, it's such a skill to develop across the whole range of jujitsu that it does seem interesting that it's, you know, high, it can be highlighted by Kesakatami. Well, let's talk about submissions. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things about Kesakatami is the weird array of submissions you get from there that are just like exotic and strange. It's a funny position because if you go to a lot of other positions, you'll see variants of the same thing. But Kesigatame has like this whole weird, like cornucopia of bizarre submissions you can do that are actually shockingly effective. <laughs> I mean, and this is probably actually embarrassing. I'm not sure that as a black belt, I should admit this, but one of my highest percentage submissions is probably the leg Americana from Kesakatame. I get that all the time on people. It's such a cool position. I absolutely adore everything about it. You know, I feel like as a, as a, like a senior dude, I should be doing boring stuff like arm bars and triangles, but I love the leg Americana. It's one of my favorite things to do to people. And of course, like you said, you know, there's that the Kessa crush, uh, what I call the Barnett lock, right? Where basically yep. you just hold someone in Kessa and squeeze them until they tap. There's all manner of crazy compression chokes you can do from there where you like crush the person's lungs. Some of those are not going to be legal under certain rule sets, but they're still fun. Incidentally, also one of my other favorite submissions, uh, you know, I, I got to call out a legendary grappler, CM Punk. One <laughs> of his, one of his WWE submissions, the Anaconda Vice, you can do from Kessa Katami. It's it's not high percentage, but I have totally done that to people before. <laughs> so I'm wondering what other submissions, do you have a game from Kesakatame to finish the fight from there? Oh, a hundred percent. But first of all, I can't believe you're going to make me Google CM Punk when we, when this <laughs> when this finishes in the Anaconda Vice because now I got to know it's exactly. The most, it's the most garbage submission possible, but there are ways to actually pull it off successfully, especially against someone who is bigger and has inflexible shoulders. I I might actually have to make a like how to do a WWE submission in Brazilian jiu-jitsu video, because I think I might be the only grappler in the world who actually uses that in a shoot fight versus in a fake fight. Please do. I'm fascinated by <laughs> this now. I got I to gotta find out. There could have been a small chance of CM Punk going into the UFC and pulling off the Anaconda Vice is it, what I'm hearing. It is possible that CM Punk could, in a parallel universe, CM Punk yes. won his fights by a WWE submission. That, okay. it, that could have actually happened. Okay. All right. I'm on board. I'm on board for that then. But yeah. So like once you get into that position, I mean, the great thing is with the submissions is because we have, you know, the limited or predictable escape patterns, you can set, you know, I can set up a predictable attack pattern of their defenses. So the, the big thing that defines it for me, what I'm going to be looking to go for is the positioning of the opponent's trapped arm, which is the, the arm closest to your body and their elbow position. You know, so you can force it uh, between your legs where it's it's like splitting splitting your legs and then you have a bunch of armbar and kimura options from there. Uh, it can be free out of the legs, but on the on the far side of your body, which again, you're looking at the, the armbar and kimura options are the most highest percentage ones from there. 
the arm can then be framing against your face, which we've which we've talked about, or it can be across their center line, which then you have more choking options and also Kimura op- transitions to go into there. So that's that's the big thing that I'm looking for of what attacks I'm actually going to move to, which is the positioning of the opponent's trapped arm and where it is. And like you know the the V arm lock, the the American leg Americana, that for sure for out of the arm lock options is the most high percentage one that comes up. When I'm looking for competition footage, that's the one that seems to to pop up most often. But of course, you've also got straight armbar options off there. But the, you know, so between the straight armbar and the leg Americana, you know, those are going to be your most high percentage submissions on the, on the far side. There are, you know, some wrist locks and stuff too, which can, which can pop up. But I mean, I'm, I'm not really focused focused on those ones because if you wrist lock someone from Kesigatami, I mean then it's just you know they're not they you got them with the most memey subs happening right there well second most memey we already covered the buggy choke right so <laughs> exactly so I mean if, if you can't tell I do enjoy a good meme sub <laughs> there is there is some there is some fun in that and of course the other big one so you've got the the Kessa crush and and or that I call it it's got a, a thousand names where you're putting that pressure on that's the Josh Barnett one right the Josh Josh Barnett one but then of course one of the most common ways that they'll look to defend that is by trying to roll your body weight back down onto the that, which takes some pressure off them and they people will often use their legs to do it so basically try and knee you in the back to move away from it and when they do you can actually reach back with your free hand hook that leg yes lock, lock your hands on your thighs and work your thighs in and then you've got the bass root and body crush yeah that was taught to me as, I don't know if anyone else calls it this, but at least up in our area where we live, my instructor, I, I mentioned earlier, one of my first instructors was big into Kessa and he taught us that and called it the vampire choke. And now full disclosure, I do not believe that is IBJJF legal because technically it is a, it is like a lung compression choke, but yeah. holy Jesus, does it suck. Like if you do that where you've got Kessa on one side and your opponent's leg on the other and you just squeeze them like an accordion, like... If you're strong, and, and you don't even have to be strong. I mean, I, I used to do this all the time, and I was not a big guy. It is uh, just a vile submission. Yeah. With the Kessa Crush and the Body cr- body Crunch, in terms of legality, you're pretty much going to be at the discretion of the referees, I think. Like, I, you know, it is just, you know, pressure, lung compression, but, they're you know, probably they're going to look at it and think our uh, neck crank, which... You know, look, maybe dust off, maybe many dust chokes that people get tapped by could be neck cranks as well. But this one just looks, looks bad. So if it's uh, down to the final, the finals, you're going to be putting yourself in the hands of referee's discretion, I, I think. But man, what a submission. <laughs> oh. Look, if someone's filming, you know. You you want to get that meme sub, so go for yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. if, if you're trying to build your your highlight reel for Reddit, you definitely want to get the vampire choke body crunch into there for sure. Exactly. You yeah. Know? yeah. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> One thing I would point out. If you are going for leg submissions on your opponent's arm, like especially if you have them in Kesagatami and you're trying to do a straight arm lock, 
mm-hmm. if you have any degree of concern for your opponent's well-being, you've oh, got to be yeah. really yeah, you got to be really careful there because your legs have a lot of power and it's hard to feel what's going on when you're trying to use your legs to break an arm. Like if I put you in a standard arm bar and I'm using my arms, I have really good feel and control on what's happening, but if I'm using my legs to try to to break your arm, it can just happen because my legs are just so powerful. I, I can't really feel what's going on and exactly how hyperextended you are. So you just have to be mindful of that. Like I have, I have had a lot of panic taps from people when I get them into that position and I didn't even realize it was like mm. heavily locked on it. I thought it was loose, but actually it's just, it's such, such a, a damaging move to be using your legs to break someone's arm. So just be careful if you're doing that because you might be putting more force on than you think you are. Yeah, a hundred percent. Whenever I'm teaching that is like, put it, you got to put it on so slow because you can just generate so much force. Essentially, you know, your, your entire legs are putting on the Americana or the entire power of your legs go going into an Americana. So yeah, there's definitely dangers involved in that position if you're not careful. But yeah, de- definitely warnings on that. So I just want to, before we wrap this up, I want to add my contribution to the jujitsu meme choke library here, which Let's is that one of the things that I do in Kesegatame that I don't know of anyone else doing, but it's super effective in both gi and no gi is the Ezekiel choke. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. So if where I do this a lot is... You know, a lot of people, when they get into Kessa, sometimes they get there and they know that they're not going to get out. So their defense is like, I'm just going to hide my arm. And they try to tuck that near side arm in such a way that you just can't hyperextend it. Like that's a, that's a common thing that people will do in Kessa. If you have their, if their arm is trapped between your legs and they know they're not going to get out, they're just going to like hide it for dear life. And it can be frustrating because you can't really arm submit them easily from there. So what I do is... I mean, if I'm especially holding them in that pillow choke, right, I just Ezekiel mm-hmm. choke them. If mm-hmm. I'm in the gi, I will bring my hand in and I'll actually get like my fingers in the sleeve. But in no gi, I just take my free arm and I just crush it across their throat. <laughs> like, are you going to yep. submit the person? I mean, if they just sit there and do nothing, maybe. But it's even if you don't submit them, probably they're going to have to start defending, which means now their arm is going to come back into play. So that is a legitimate option. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's one of my favorite ways too of getting, just using it exactly as you said to, if they've got their hands locked and, you know, looking for the bridge, start looking for that Ezekiel and it's a quick way to get the hand around the front of the body. And then if you can, you know, you can time it to try and just try and catch, catch their arm as it comes around with your legs and start looking for that, the Americana, the arm lock straight off that. So that is a, like, that's one of the go-tos. Uh, for me when I get in that position also, because it just, it's, one, the Ezekiel is not going to be fun for the person and it just, it almost guarantees that they're going to, they're going to let go and, and look to defend. Man, I, one of these days I want to do a whole podcast episode just on the Ezekiel choke. It's like, that's one of those other moves that I think is criminally underused, especially in the gi. It's just... It's yeah. so vile and it it has a series of mechanics that are different from almost every other choke. So I, listeners, if you want to hear me rant about the Ezekiel choke for an hour, send me an email and let me know and maybe we can make that happen. Well, Sonny, thank you so much for coming by. I thought this was fantastic. Anything that we missed or closing comments on Kesekatame before we tied this episode up? No, I had I had fun, Steve. Thanks so much for for inviting inviting me on here. I mean, we could talk for days on Kesegatami. Let's yeah. let's be real. There's just you know never uh, nonstop supply 
of uh, of factoids with Kessa. Um, but uh, yeah, so I am I, I have recorded uh, instructional on Kessa Gatami that I'm gonna, that I'm going to be looking to put out, which is really you know I, I've really focused on you know putting it into a system that you can transition into all of the high percentage attacks of the you know like of the Danaher system. So I've got transitions into leg locks and onto the back Kimuras, as I think that that's probably if anyone's going to play it. You know, that kind of negates a lot of the criticisms of it if you're using it to then get into the high percentage, high percentage moves as well. So that I'm not exactly sure when that's going to come out because I have filmed it, but then I'm, you know, critical of myself. So I want to film it again. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's going to be something on the, on the horizon as well, which I've, I've kind of just gone over everything there. Well, if people want to follow you to get updates on that instructional, or if they want to check out your awesome memes, where do they go to do that, buddy? Of course, of course. So Instagram seems to be the most active place at the moment, which is Sunny Brown Breakdown on Instagram, also on Facebook under Sunny Brown Martial Arts, I think at the moment, Twitter under under Sunny Brown. And of course, you can check out the podcast. I've got Sunny Brown Breakdown. If you're looking for episodes to listen to, there's one with a with a gentleman known as uh, Steve Kwan. And, you know, there's also one with Matt Kwan as well. So you could, you know, see, you know, who, who's your favorite is pretty yeah. much what I'm, what I'm putting forward. You can go listen to those ones. And that the links to that is uh, on my website where you can find the links to everything else, which is sunnybrown.net. And uh, yeah, th- those are all the best ways. And thanks if you've made it this far listening. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for listening. And of course, if you want to check us out, get more information on our work, bjjmentalmodels.com. That's the place where you can really find everything we do. We have a whole database of concepts on there that we talk about on the show. That's how you can contact us, get to our store, get on our awesome mailing list. And of course, we do have, in my opinion, an awesome premium offering. You can check that out at patreon.com slash bjjmentalmodels. In addition to helping us fund the show, keep the lights on, that's also where where we offer all of our premium stuff. So if you like the ideas that we talk about on the show and you want to really dig deep into the kind of courseware that breaks down these ideas further, and also if you want to just get access to our awesome Discord community, which is fantastic, that's the way to do it. It's not expensive at all and you can cancel anytime. So please do consider it if you aren't already a patron there, patreon.com slash models. Like I said, you can cancel at any time, even actually before the first charge. So Try it out. There's no cost. And if you like it, you can stick with it. So thanks again, Sonny. I guess I'll probably see you on Reddit, huh? Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> sure. I'll be there. Don't worry. <laughs> you, if you go to Reddit at any time of day and check out uh, RBJJ, there's like an over 50% chance that you're going to see crap that Sonny and I are putting on there. I think we, we basically <laughs> dominate that subreddit at this point. <laughs> I, I, it's it's good. It's a it's a thriving thriving community. It's community actually there, really so. good. Like I'm, yeah. I'm very hesitant to participate in stuff like that because you know, oh god, you think it's going to be like a, a troll farm, basically. But the Reddit community is actually pretty good on Reddit. Yeah. Right? So anyway, there's there's my plug for Reddit. So I guess I'll see you there, Sonny. <laughs> I'll see you there, Steve. Thanks, mate. Take care, buddy, and thanks to the listeners, of course, as well. We'll see you guys next week.